Hey everybody, welcome again to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ podcast. My name is Phil Bruns. Thank you so much for taking time from your day to be with us. Well, have you ever thought of yourself as either a king or a queen? Well, today Ezra is going to bring us another great message to talk about Jesus and his anointing as king and how it ties to you and can help you today in your life. Hello, I'm excited to continue our sermon series on the names of Jesus. So today we'll be talking about the word Christ and the word Messiah. But first I want you to think about a completely different word, the word catfish. In the distant past, before the information age, a catfish was a freshwater or marine fish with barbels resembling whiskers around the mouth, typically bottom dwelling, according to the dictionary. But today the word catfish has an entirely new meaning as someone presenting a false identity online. So as we talk about the words Christ and Messiah, I want you to remember that words tend to shift over time, and what it meant then is not necessarily what it means now. Let's take the word Messiah. Often this word gets associated with the word Savior, but that's not the actual definition, though it can be its meaning. We think of someone having a Messiah complex if they believe they're meant to save the world. But it really just means someone anointed with oil. And I'll talk later about how this term became associated with the term savior. Similarly, the word Christ has also shifted in its associations today. It was almost always used directly after the name of Jesus to refer to Jesus of Nazareth, who is written about in the Bible. And we can almost use it as something of a last name. You know, not Jesus Franco, the Spanish filmmaker, but Jesus Christ, the religious figure. And it's also often used as an expletive, you know, something you say when you stub your toe or somebody cuts you off in traffic. But let's think critically about this. Christ is not a surname for this first century Jew. It's actually just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which also means anointed, usually with oil. So Christ is a title. My name is Ezra. It's my birth name. It's who I am. And my title, I guess, could be minister. That's what I do. If I stub my toe, I'm not going to call out in frustration, Oh, Ezra, minister! That would just be ridiculous. So why are these words used today as a synonym for the word savior, or as a last name for Jesus, or as an expletive? What's so special about anointing somebody with oil? So if we look in the Hebrew scriptures, This was a very important ritual in the inauguration of Israelite priests, kings, and even prophets. In Leviticus chapter 8, there's the anointing of Aaron and his sons as priests. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anoints David as king of Israel. And there's a reference to the anointing of Elisha as the prophet to succeed Elijah in 1 Kings 19. So this ceremonial anointing with oil showed the people that this person who was being smeared with oil had no earthly authority over them, but they directly reported to God. So when the Hebrew scriptures reference the hope of a messianic figure coming, they're specifically looking for someone to fill this role of king or priest, someone who isn't held responsible to an emperor or a foreign king, but answers only to God. This is because the Hebrew people were often oppressed by foreign kings and emperors, and they wrote about looking forward to when God would free them from the oppressors and reestablish his kingdom. 
This is why Messiah often gets associated with Savior. And the word Christ has become so popular today as a last name for Jesus that it's lost a lot of the original intent. And most people wouldn't associate Jesus Christ as Jesus, the one who was anointed. So let's look at what that anointing means. What does it mean for Jesus to be anointed? To understand the impact of Jesus's anointing, let's read Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because that is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Some Israelites had been hoping for this anointed person to come, someone with authority from God to bring back the golden age of Israel in the time of David. For more on this, you can check out Isaiah. You can start your search in chapter 9. But the whole book has a lot about this promised future Messiah. But in the book of Matthew, King Herod, the scribes, and the priest, and even the three Babylonian magicians knew that Jesus was an important figure and even a Messiah, someone to be anointed. By their gifts, the three Babylonian magicians showed that Jesus was to be a priest, a king, and a prophet. The gold symbolized his kingship, the frankincense symbolized his priesthood, and the myrrh was used in burial, which connected Jesus with the prophets who often died for their messages. So the magicians confirmed that Jesus filled these roles of anointed positions. And as a side note, in verse 4, when it says that he assembled the chief priests and the scribes and the people asked him where the Messiah would be born, in the Greek version of Matthew, which our English versions are translated from, the word Christ is used, but many English Bibles were translated back into the Hebrew word Messiah. And so the chief priests and the scribes and even King Herod himself recognized that Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies of a promised Messiah, and they felt threatened by it. If we look at the start of Jesus's ministry in Luke 4 verses 17 through 19, we see that Jesus claims that anointing. It says, He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it looks like Jesus is saying he's not just any Messiah, but he's the Messiah of all Messiahs. But there were other Messiahs at that time, as I referenced earlier, including King Herod the Great. Herod, the current king, was paranoid that someone would claim his crown, and the idea that someone was anointed to do his job was far too much for him. Very similar to Saul, who was afraid of David, who had been anointed to take Saul's place as king back in First and Second Samuel, Herod knew that he didn't have God's favor, and so he tried to kill Jesus to protect his crown. There was also Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor, not just the king, but the king of kings of that time. He was, in the words of the day, the only begotten son of the god and father of the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar. He was called the savior of the world and the redeemer, and pretty much everything that was said about Jesus's power and supremacy was in direct offense to Caesar Augustus. These were extremely treasonous themes. And the gospel writers were basically saying, Jesus is the real authority here, not Caesar. In addition to Herod and Caesar, there were the priests or the Sadducees who were also anointed as part of their appointment to their priestly roles. But unfortunately, the priesthood at the time of Jesus was nothing more than a mafia who ran the Holy Temple of God through their own political purposes. Another group were the Pharisees, often represented as the scribes, who we see back in Matthew chapter 2. And the Pharisees could be seen as contemporary prophets in a way. They were extremely concerned with following Torah and keeping all the traditions of the religion they had built around the Torah. Like the prophets of the Old Testament, they saw themselves as the ones speaking God's word into society. And Jesus came wielding a sledgehammer directly and succinctly taking down their religiosity. The Pharisees and the Sadducees both felt threatened by Jesus' anointing, and they conspired together to kill Jesus later on in his ministry. And the simple fact that all of these messiahs knew was that they were not going to restore Jerusalem to the glory of King David's time, and they all felt threatened by this new messiah. And so at the end of Jesus' life, we see a conspiracy between the king of Judea, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Rome to take Jesus out of the picture. So what did Jesus do with that? How did he show that he really was the Messiah that was going to bring back the kingdom of God? Well, first, he really didn't have any political answers to the real political problems of his day. Jesus didn't try to take over the Roman Empire or topple the corrupt religious leadership. Instead, he just radically loved the people that were right around him and brought them hope and peace. Let's look closely at the passage in Luke 4. In verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And in Jesus' ministry, we see him working closely with the people on the outskirts of society. His miracles all centered around supporting people in vulnerable positions and bringing them back into their communities. Then the passage says to proclaim release to the captives. And we see Jesus forgiving people of their sin, and he helped them to overcome it, freeing them from the captivity of sin. Then the passage says the recovery of sight to the blind. 
Not only did Jesus heal people's physical blindness, he helped people to clearly see who God is. And Jesus makes a statement many times that if we know Jesus, then we'll really know God. Next, it says to set free the oppressed. Jesus completely flipped the script on who was on top. For him, the least powerful people are the most important. And finally, the passage ends with proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. God loves us and wants us to be with him here on earth and for eternity. And Jesus made it his mission to help people understand that beautiful reality. So, as I said earlier, Jesus didn't take over the Roman Empire. He didn't change the religious structure. What he did was radically love people and bring hope and peace. In contrast to the other messiahs of his day, who worked through political means to gain power for themselves, Jesus really showed himself to be the messiah of messiahs, the one who didn't have an earthly authority over him and used his position where he reported directly to God to actually bring light and love into this world. Okay, so remember the catfish at the beginning? I want to flip the script again. According to the writings of the apostles, the disciples of Jesus also have this anointing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. And then John in 1 John chapter 2 says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. And again, in Hebrews 1, it says, Your God has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. So what does this mean? It means that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a Messiah. You are anointed and made sacred. Christ is not just Jesus' last name or a marker of what religion you're part of. It's your title. Now, that does not mean that you are the savior of the world. Let's not get a Messiah complex. But what it means is that you have a sacred duty to do the work of God's kingdom here on earth. So what is our work? Well, let's go back to Luke 4. Our work is to bring the people on the outskirts of society into community with others. Our work is to forgive people who sin against us and help people own their forgiveness. To help people to clearly see who God is. God is love. And it's to operate on the principle that the least valuable person is the greatest person. And it is to live your life centered around being with God. So how will you be a Christ? Think about how you can bring the kingdom of peace to your family, to your place of work, to the city that you live in. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, you have an incredible opportunity to become a Christ and bring love and peace into the community around you. To conclude, I want to reiterate that Christ is not a last name or an expletive, and Messiah is not someone with delusional dreams of saving the world but it's a title, a title of someone who's tasked with loving people. Will you follow Jesus and claim the anointing that he offers? I hope that was helpful, and if you liked it, would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're in the Charlottesville, Virginia area, would like to stop in and visit us at a Sunday service, please send us a note or visit our website at blueridgedisciples.org for more information.